Well, we are going to continue this morning our journey through Colossians, this ancient letter that is full of truth and treasure for us to mine together. Let's read today's passage. It's Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. Colossians 3, 5 to 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have read your word, we have heard your word. We trust that these things have been breathed out by you for our good, for our encouragement. We know they're true. Father, would you please pour out your spirit on each one of us, enabling us to hear your voice through your word and even transforming us as we hear it. Would you speak specifically to each of us this morning, Father? In Jesus' name, amen. So our text for this morning is not a light one, is it? We're going to be focusing on sinful desires and behaviors that, quite frankly, most of us would rather not have to do on Sunday morning. I know that as I was studying and praying and preparing, I felt sadness as I wrestled with this text. Sadness over my own sin, the joy I forfeited in it, and sadness over the sin of others that I love, that I know has a stranglehold on them. My guess is that some of you might also feel that this morning as we walk through this, the heaviness of sin. But in addition to sadness, I also felt a lot of hope. Felt hopeful. Good Friday is a very sad day, isn't it? I mean, We call it good because we know on this side of it what God was accomplishing, but the day the Son of God was crucified on a Roman cross was a sad day. Now, the amazing thing is, for us, we're here on Sunday because Easter came. We do it 52 times a year now, like Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we remember the joy that came after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And I believe that's what God has in store for each one of us as we deal with sinful habits and patterns in our life that are not necessarily fun to think about, we will continue to experience real and true freedom, resurrection lives right now in this life. My plan this morning for this text is to move us from why to what to how. So why deal with sin this way? Why take it seriously and put it to death? What exactly does it mean to put sin to death? And then what is Paul? He has a couple lists of sins we'll look at. But then finally, I want to end with some very practical hows. If you wanted to deal with some of these sins, where would you start? 
what would be helpful. The first part of the answer then to the question of why, why put sin to death, is contained, I believe, in the fourth word of the passage, therefore. Therefore connects the practical instructions that we read in this passage to the truths and reality that have come before it throughout the book of Colossians and especially in Colossians chapter 3. It functions, the word therefore functions like the phrase, in light of these things, in light of this truth, in light of this unseen reality, do this. And last week we heard Jay preach through this life-altering reality from the beginning of Colossians 3. So if you haven't heard that one yet, I would encourage you this week to give it a prayerful listen online. This morning, though, I do want to give us a few minutes of just reminder, where have we been in Colossians and recently? First, God has delivered each one of us who is in Jesus from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of Christ, the risen King. While we were in the kingdom of darkness, we were dehumanized. We were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In that dark kingdom, there was no flourishing and no life for any of us. That kingdom actually has no creative powers at all. It's not like God that can create new things. In the kingdom of darkness, they cannot create the evil one. Instead, it's all about anti-creation. Taking the good that God has made and warping it and destroying it and twisting it, stealing the life from it. But that is not where we are anymore in Christ. In Jesus, we no longer belong to that domain of darkness. We've been set free from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has defeated those powers. He has triumphed over them in the cross and in his resurrection, and he's now seated at the right hand of God where he reigns over the whole world, over his kingdom. We are no longer slaves to sin or slaves to death or slaves to Satan, the evil one. That is not our life anymore. We are servants of Christ and have died and risen in union with him. We've been co-crucified with Christ. We've been co-resurrected with Christ. This is a present-day reality for us. It has happened. All of this is because of the glorious gospel of Jesus, our King. The King of all, the one over all, who has all authority, the crucified, risen, and ascended one, And over and over and over again in this letter, the Apostle Paul wants to make it plain and clear to all of us that Jesus Christ is the answer and solution to every need we have and every problem we face. They are found in Him. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Him we find the answer to all of those needs. In Him is all sufficiency. In Him we receive forgiveness of sins. We receive reconciliation with God. In him is life, eternal life, the eternal kind of life that we get to receive now in this life through him. And in Jesus, we see true and full humanity on display in a way the world has not seen, the image of God in the flesh. And now we get to live in and that for that kingdom that he reigns over. We fix our attention and our focus on him. And last week, Jay taught about setting our minds on things above. So we set our focus, our attention, our hearts, our gaze upon Christ and upon his kingdom because with him and in him is where our life actually is now. And this week we'll see 
Not only do our minds and our hearts get directed towards him, but actually our entire body and our souls are transformed, being renewed in his image. Have you, have you ever experienced what it's like to feel foreign or just not from around here? Maybe on a vacation and you sounded different or you had different mannerisms or you moved to a new place that was very different from where you had been before. Our family, a lot of you know, moved back to Wisconsin from Ottawa, Canada's capital, about a year ago already. So we assumed last week that Jay meant to set our minds on Canada, the things above. That's what we thought he was saying to us. All the people we love there and leaves and maple syrup and snow and hockey and poutine. I don't know if you've had poutine, but we should do a big poutine fest here someday. I miss poutine. It's french fries and gravy and cheese curds. It's a wonderful combination. I digress, though. Uh, but as we lived in Canada, the feeling of not being from there was a regular occurrence for us. I mean, it's not a state. It's another country with customs and ways of doing things that are very different than here. I'll give you an example of what that was like. I remember the first time we went to one of our kids' parent-teacher conferences. And Jess and I had gotten separated somewhere in the school. We hadn't been in this school very much, so we were wandering looking for the kids' classrooms. And a woman saw Jess looking. She could tell she was looking for me. And she said to Jess, is your husband the American in the room over there? Yep, that was me. I didn't have an American flag shirt on. I wasn't walking through the hall saying, I pledge allegiance to the flag. I, mean, I wasn't doing any of that. But this woman, who I'd never talked to or met, knew I was not from there, but I was from here. And it's like that, actually, for each one of us. Each one of us has taken on the mannerisms and way like, of just being and living that reflects where we've lived. We've learned the language and the ways of our various homes. And this includes more than just geographical or national location, but also which cosmic kingdom we've been living in, the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. As disciples of Jesus, we get to learn from him, the equivalent of the language and the mannerisms and the ways of the kingdom of God. These Jesus ways actually will seem rather foreign and even abnormal to us at times and especially to those looking in at us as we take on the way of another place, as we learn the language, per se, of another kingdom in our lives. But everything in our lives is meant to be recalibrated to Jesus and his kingdom. And an important part of that recalibration process is stopping the old ways of the place we used to live, the old dark kingdom. Another way of thinking about it is to think of that we are called as followers of Jesus to live a gospel-shaped life. The gospel, we talk about it all the time here. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' ascension, his life. Our, mark, our life is to be marked by that. That is, we were co-crucified with him, so our life is marked by a death that happened once in him, and it continues to happen as we put the old ways off, and our life gets to be marked by a resurrection as we put the new ways on. This week, as we just read, our focus is going to be on the co-crucifixion part, on the part of putting off the old ways. And next week, Ravi is going to focus on the new resurrection life that we get to live in this world right now. So the first part 
of the answer to our question of why, why put sin to death, is, is this. This is not who we are anymore. We are not part of that kingdom in those ways anymore. We come to that conclusion from all that we've learned in Colossians and then from this passage. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, Do not lie to one another. Why? You have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In Christ, you have already put off the old self with its practices, and you've already put on the new self. You are a new creation in him. So as we read this, it's basically Paul saying to us, the Holy Spirit saying to us, really, become who you are. Become who you are. And there are two more answers to the question of why in this passage. First one is in verse 6. It's the wrath of God. It's another heavy topic. It's important for us to understand that God's wrath is not like human vengeance, as if he were going to get us back. It's not vindictiveness either. And it's surely not an uncontrolled rage like we might imagine a human who is full of wrath would have. God's wrath is related to his jealousy, his love for those he created and loves. So his wrath for us, ought to call to mind the final judgment when God will once and for all deal with all that is evil and destroy it. Everything that has distorted and polluted and twisted his good creation, God is going to deal with through his wrath. So for us, if we are in Christ, the mention of God's wrath is not meant to frighten us into obedience. That is not the intention. It is to underscore that these sinful ways are going to come to an end and that God will deal with them once and for all. So we do not want them to be part of our life because we know where they lead. Right now, God does permit sin in his good creation, but someday he will deal with it once and for all. A second aspect of God's wrath is what theologians call his passive judgment. God's passive judgment is just the cause and effect reality, the cause and effect penalty that is built into these sins that we'll look at to dehumanize us. When we choose to sin, we experience them. Guilt, shame, broken relationships, depending on the sin, legal consequences. In addition to those things, there's a dehumanizing and a warping of our very souls that happens as we engage in these things. One example of that dehumanization that I've experienced and I've seen in others is a dulling of our emotional world a dulling of a feeling in us. And I know some of us are wired more feeling and some of us are wired less. But even for those of us who would say, I just, I'm not really a feeler, there's something about some of these sins that so warps and distorts things in us that it actually can dull whatever feeling we do have. I remember one morning, I was in the basement of Governor's Hall at UW-Eau Claire doing campus ministry and I was meeting with a number of college men They were working together to put sin to death, like we're talking today. One thing that we would do when we'd gather is like a check-in. How was your week? How did it go walking with Jesus this week? I remember one morning, one of them looked at the rest of the group, really excited. He said, I had a great week. On Sunday, I felt the sermon. I remember thinking for a minute, what is he talking about? So I said, can you give us a little more? What, What do you mean you felt the sermon? And he began to tell us how for years 
he had not been able to feel a thing because of habitual sin that had just strangled life from him. And as he was killing it and putting it to death, God was freeing him. God was healing him and restoring that which he had lost. And the way he described it, he hadn't even realized fully that he had lost it till he felt it again and he was coming alive. That leads me to our final reason of why put this to death. It's because real and tangible progress is possible. We can actually do this in Christ. We can actually put these things to death. And the life and the freedom and the healing that will come as we do that is worth any cost. It's worth the challenge and the difficulty of staring at it and dealing with it. The student I just mentioned experienced that. I have experienced that. I know there's many in the room. If I had a microphone, you could just come up and share how dealing with sin in your life has brought freedom and healing to you and to your families. And then in verse 10 in this passage, we're promised that the new self which we have put on is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This renewal and freedom and healing is God's ongoing work in each one of his sons and daughters. He's working to transform us into the image of Jesus, who is the image of God, which is what human beings were created to be. In the very beginning, God created them, male and female. In the image of God, he created them. That's what our role is in this world, to reflect his rule and his character to all of creation. And that's what his priority is for us each day. When we wake up and we wonder, God, what do you have for me today? We know every single day, at least one of those things is transformation into the image of Jesus that day. And it's a promise that he's going to bring to pass. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 49. It says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What a promise to bank on. So as we embark on this journey to continue to put sin to death and to start afresh, we can do so with confidence that God is with us and he will bring it to full completion. So I want to move now from why, why do this, to what. What does put to death mean and what specifically are we called to put to death? Our passage has three different phrases to capture the idea of unlearning and putting off what is not of Christ. The first one is put to death. That's in verse 5. And then there's one that says put them all away in verse 8. And another one, put off in verse 9. But first, put to death. That phrase, put to death, has a finality to it, doesn't it? It's a completion. We don't partially put these things to death. They're either alive in our life or they're dead. It's totally and completely put to death, as that is what God's calling us to. Which makes it really clear that God does not intend for us to be dabbling in these ways or occasionally reviving them during a season of life. The other two phrases, put away and put off, are paired with the positive put on later in Colossians 3. And this is the image of changing clothing, taking the old off and putting the new on. And it most likely comes from the way that the early church practiced baptism. When they heard this, they would have been thinking of, as they got into the water, the old clothes coming off, symbolizing their old life that they were no longer going to be part of, going down in burial with Christ and coming up in new resurrection life. And they were given then a new white robe to put on, which was to symbolize new life and purity that they now had in him. 
In the same way, we are called to put off and be done with those old ways of life that don't, don't conform to Christ or to his kingdom. And now I want to look briefly at the two lists of sins. There's two separate lists of earthly ways is what Paul describes them as. These lists are not meant to be exhaustive as if this is the only things that we would be putting off and dealing with, but they were most likely the things that, as Paul thought and prayed about the Colossians, that he knew these were prevalent and they needed to be dealt with. And as we look at them, you can see they still need to be dealt with in us today. These are very relevant to our situation. The first list up there focuses on disordered desires or disordered loves that then in turn lead to actions in our life. But I don't want us to miss that they, they start in our heart. They start within and they move out into actions because we're not talking about just a list of do's and don'ts this morning. We're not just talking about modifying our behaviors to fulfill some rules. We're talking about whole life transformation that involves our heart and our mind and our body, all of us. So that first list, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. The first three, sexual immorality, impurity, and passion, are very clearly and obviously sexual in nature, although some would make an argument that all of those in that first list are related to sexuality in some way. But for the first three, we know for sure, they take God's good gift of sexuality and sex, which is meant to reflect his goodness to us, like, for example, his self-giving love, and be only for a covenanted marriage relationship between a husband and wife, just like God covenants with his people. It's supposed to reflect that. And quite literally, it can lead to life. These sins turn that good intention of God, self-giving love, covenant, and life on its head. And sex becomes about self-centered pleasure and gratification, not within the, abound, the bounds of a covenanted relationship, and instead leads to pain and trauma, objectification, and dehumanization. C.S. Lewis said that the ugliest things in human nature are perversions of good and innocent things. And I think he was right. God created sex for good. And the evil one, again, unable to create like God can, takes the good and seeks to ruin it and twist it. And what was designed to literally lead to life can then lead to death and suffering. Next on the list is evil desires. And these are just general desires that are contrary to Christ and lead to sin. And in the, in the sentence... They, they kind of have this sense of an appetite that is growing and growing and growing that almost leads to a lack of self-control that will indulge that desire at some point. It's a desire that's like over the person in the end. And then the last one on the first list, covetousness, is qualified, right? It says covetousness, which is idolatry. Greed in the end is a worship disorder. Greed is when we take our hopes and our loves and we direct them more and more and more at what will actually not bring us life at all. Again, like the others, it dehumanizes us. Think of the character Smeagol from the epic Lord of the Rings trilogy. Here's a picture of Smeagol. If you haven't seen this or read the book really briefly, Smeagol was a small creature called a hobbit who found a ring that gave him unusual power and seemingly unending youth. 
But sadly for Smeagol, the ring ends up holding power over him in the form of evil desire and greed focused on possessing the ring. Smeagol ends up being dehobitized, which is a hobbit form of dehumanized. And he becomes Gollum on the other side of the screen. I think that's a really powerful visual of what happens inside a human heart when it is set on these things. That's what it looks like to be dehumanized by it. And it's where all of these things lead internally. The second list focuses on sins of disunity. Again, these sins begin in the heart, but these ones are expressed with the mouth, with the tongue. They're expressed in how we speak to each other. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. For time's sake, I'm not going to walk through each one of those, but I do want to point out that it's really clear from this list that the way we talk with each other is very important to God. Our words have immense power, more than we realize, to strengthen, encourage, and build up, but also to tear down and to discourage, which is really like discourage is to steal strength from another person. James chapter 3, 1 to 12 is one worth noting. I would encourage you to read that later, but it's an extended teaching on the power of such a small organ, the tongue. Listen to what James 3, 5 says. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. You know what I find really sad about the second list is that I know for many of us, it's the people who are closest to us who end up being on the receiving end of these things. The very people who we love the most are often the people that receive the tongue lashing of some kind that this list describes. So these lists affect our family and the Apostle Paul had in mind also the church family. Engaging in that sort of talk, any of those things, leads to disunity and disorder in his church. And do any one of us think that social media is an exception to these? Not at all. I mean, as we increasingly relate to each other pixel to pixel instead of person to person or face to face, it seems that we say things to each other that we would never say in person. There is something about the perceived distance of a screen and a keyboard that allows us to say things that we would never say. It makes it easier to set the forest ablaze. Brothers and sisters, these ways of treating each other may be normal in the world, but they have no place in the kingdom of God to which we belong together. We must pay careful attention to how we speak and type to each other and put to death all evil speech. After all, the source of all lies and distorting harmful words is the evil one who is actually called the father of lies. Every time we give voice to any of these things, like anger, slander, lying, we give voice to dark, anti-creation forces. We join them in their treason and attempts to ruin the good God has made. And evil is never overcome by evil. Evil added to evil is just more evil. It is only overcome by good. One of my favorite passages, Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
And oh, that would change the way we interact. So we've now talked about the why, why puts in the death, and the what. I want to move now to the how. Specifically, how do we put these things to death? How do we change out of the old clothes? Well, in short, we do so through a spirit-empowered training process. We do so through a spirit-empowered training process. That may not sound like much of an answer, but just hold with me for a minute here. I think it might be different than the way some of us have approached this in the past. If you're like me, for many years in my walk with Jesus, when I would hear passages like this and I was determined to follow them, all I knew to do was try harder. So if anger was an issue for me, I would just try harder to stop it. The problem with trying, though, is that it wasn't very effective for me. I didn't feel like I made much real, tangible progress in putting any of these things off by merely trying. Like imagine today, if I decided I'm going to run a marathon, I'm going to try to run a marathon, I'm going to try really, really hard to run a marathon. No amount of trying is going to get me across that finish line. It would require training to get across that finish line. And even at that, I have a feeling that I would be limping across the line. But training for a marathon would require a process. And this is the process that I'm going to suggest for us this morning. VIM. Vision, intention, and means. Three steps. So let's keep our minds in the marathon for a minute, and then we'll move back to the spiritual realm. So my vision, if I was going to run a marathon, would be to run the marathon and to become the sort of person who could run marathons. That would be my vision. My intention would be the decision that I would make over and over and over again to do all that's required to see that vision of running a marathon come to pass. The means would be all the practical actions that I would need to take if I was going to carry out that intention. For example, buying running shoes, starting a routine of regularly running short distances. Each time I would do that, that would be a means to carrying out this intention for this vision. And I believe we can apply this same process in our walk with Jesus to put sin to death. We've already been talking this morning about what our vision is. Our vision is an abundant life calibrated to Jesus in his kingdom where these ways no longer have a part. That is our vision. Another part of it, it's really important that as we seek to rid our lives of sin, that we do so from the proper perspective from the proper position. We enter into putting sin to death because we are loved, we are accepted by God, we are adopted as his own, and we are full of his Holy Spirit. We do not put sin to death in order to be loved by God or in order to become a child of God. That order is very, very important as we embark on this journey. Second, we recognize as part of our vision that this will require spirit-empowered decision-making and spirit-empowered actions on our part. It will require God-dependent effort, putting sin to death. Think about a farmer. A farmer has a field that he wants a certain crop to come up in at the end of the season. Who causes the farmer's crops to grow? Not the farmer. But the farmer has a very important role to play in the process, yes? If he ends the season and nothing comes up in that field, you might ask, 
Well, did you plant or cultivate anything in the field? If he says no, then you say, well, next year I'd suggest taking some steps. I know God does bring the growth, but you have a really important role to play. And it's like that for us. It is God and God alone who brings transformation and renewal. But he has, in his wisdom and love, chosen to involve us in the process. That we have effort to bring forth, spirit-empowered effort, and God-dependent actions that we'll take. So that's our vision, okay? A life calibrated to the kingdom of God and to Jesus. Our intention then is going to be the decision that we make once and then we renew it over and over again to truly and fully rid ourselves of these sins. It includes a commitment also to depend upon the Holy Spirit through the process. I think it's really important that we express that intention to God and tell Him, this is what I really want. We should also express it to each other who we're journeying with. And I would encourage you to be specific as you think about that. Rather than it just being, I intend to put sin to death, probably more effective to say, I intend to put impurity to death. Or I intend to put lying to death in my life and then work on one at a time as you work through your life. Finally, then, the means. These are going to be very practical choices and actions that we take. And because of the nature of sin and the nature of different personalities and circumstances, there's this number of means different as there are a number of people in the room for different sins. So we're going to need each other to help each other learn what are going to be the specific actions that I can take to deal with this specific sin. For example, for impurity. So say you said, I need to kill impurity in my life. I would say one of the most important things for you would be to turn off the faucet of ideas and images that are a source of temptation to you. So the very practical means and actions that you would take then would be to say, There are going to be certain things I can't watch anymore because I know where they lead. Or, you know what, this smartphone is super convenient, but for a season I'm not going to have it in my pocket all the time. Or I'm only going to use the computer when other people are around. See how practical and specific that is? And that's just the beginning, right? Because I'm not talking about just behavior modification that then when those things go away, impurity flows again. Part of what's going to be involved in putting off impurity is going to be heart-level work to figure out what is it that we're after when our hearts, what are they really after when our hearts go towards impurity? Here's another example. I gave this one at the Men of Faith Conference earlier this year. What if you identified anger as an issue, and anger in particular that comes about because of impatience? So when you get impatient, you get angry. Well, an important means in that case would be to intentionally look for ways to practice patience and to trust God without anger. For example, if you're like me, I feel like pretty naturally just look for the shortest lines at a stoplight or in a store. If I was going to be consciously working on anger and impatience in my life, I would choose the longest lines. I would get in the line and I would wait And I would trust that God can meet me in that moment and that I'm going to be just fine if it takes a little longer. And you start to exercise that patience muscle. Again, this is all empowered by Jesus. Vision, intention, and means. The truth is we're all in process, aren't we? 
We're all in process. And it can be discouraging and disheartening to battle with the besetting sin over and over again. And believe me, I've been there. What we need, though, is to continually remember our vision and why this is so important and what will come of it as we really deal with it. I think verses 12 to 10, 10 to 12 in our passage hold the keys to a hopefulness that keeps us battling even when it gets really hard. While we're working to put sin to death in our lives, we remember that we have already put off the old self. It's past tense. And we've already put on the new self, past tense. And right now, God is renewing us in knowledge after the image of our Creator. God is the one who brings about change. And I believe focusing on that with these spirit-dependent actions will give us hope to be able to press on, that God can meet us right where we are and provide everything we need in order to battle sin and to truly be done with it in our lives. He has everything we need to do that. Now I'd like to do something a little different. I want us to corporately, we're going to do something corporately and then we're going to do something individually. I'd like us to corporately take just a few minutes and out loud renounce and turn away from those old ways together. When we do this, we're announcing it to each other, we're announcing it to God, and we're announcing it to those dark forces that reign over the kingdom of darkness. So I'll read the question and then together we can respond. Do we renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? We renounce them. Do we renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? We renounce them. Do we renounce all sinful desires and actions that are part of our old life? We renounce them. Now I want to take just two minutes for stillness and silence before God. There's going to be a couple of verses up on the screen, 1 John 1, 9 and 1 Corinthians 15, 49, that are amazing promises. As you heard me talking about these sins, you might have felt overwhelming need to repent and confess before God. If that's what you felt, I encourage you to do that in this moment. You might have also had ideas coming to mind about ways that you want to put sin to death. I would encourage you to talk with God about that and to ask him to give you the strength to take steps forward this week. We'll do this for a couple minutes, and then I'll pray, and the worship team will lead us in our last couple songs.
Father, we believe that what you said in 1 John 1, 9 is true. That if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Father. We know that that comes to us through your Son, Jesus. I pray that you would apply confidence to our hearts from that truth that you have truly freed us from all that would seek to entangle us and steal life from us. You've forgiven and cleansed us and you've given us new life. In Jesus' name, amen.